Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this 113th episode is presented by New York's Empire Hotel. My guest today is a young woman who, in the view of the New York Times, quote, may well be the definitive screen actress of her generation, close quote, and who also is a highly regarded writer and director, Greta Gerwig. The 33-year-old first burst onto the scene in a series of films shot during the second half of 2006 and the first half of 2007, and released in 2007 and 2008. Films including Joe Swanberg's Hannah Takes the Stairs, the Duplass Brothers' Baghead, and a film she co-directed with Swanberg, Nights and Weekends, which collectively made her the face of a new cinematic movement that came to be known as Mumblecore. She subsequently starred in a string of indies that received varying degrees of acclaim, among them Noah Baumbach's Greenberg in 2010, Francis Ha in 2013, and Mistress America in 2015, the latter two of which she co-wrote with him, as well as Whit Stillman's Damsels in Distress in 2011, Woody Allen's To Rome with Love in 2012, Barry Levinson's The Humbling in 2014, and no fewer than three 2016 films. Rebecca Miller's Maggie's Plan, a film in which she plays a woman who desperately wants to have a baby, Pablo Lorraine's Jackie, in which she plays the most trusted friend of Jacqueline Kennedy, and one for which she recently received a Best Supporting Actress Critics' Choice Award nomination and could soon receive an Oscar nomination as well, Mike Mills's 20th Century Women, in which she plays one of several women helping to raise a young man without a father. Over the course of our conversation at the Empire Hotel in New York, Gerwig and I discuss the roots of and her complicated feelings about Mumblecore, her special professional and personal relationship with Baumbach, why she doesn't like the many quirky and eccentric characters she's played to be classified as hipsters, why, not long ago, she agreed to star in a How I Met Your Mother spinoff called How I Met Your Dad, which was the last thing her many admirers expected her to turn up in, and why she was so drawn to the character of Abby in, and so enjoyed making, 20th Century Women. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Thank you for doing this. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We always just begin with a stock question. Where were you born and raised and what did or do your parents do for a living? I was born in Sacramento, California, raised in Sacramento, California. My mom was and is an RN, a nurse, and my dad was a computer programmer when I was growing up and now works for credit union doing small business loans. Were movies or television or theater a big part of your life growing up? Theater was a huge part of my life growing up. Theater and dance and music were big parts of my life. Movies were not, we didn't go to the movies that often. It wasn't really until I got to college that like movies started to be a big part of my life. And we didn't have television. Was that a so, moral thing or what was the reason? You know, sort of the wa wafting of the 60s yeah. hippie stuff <laughs> into the 80s right. and early 90s. And I had a t-shirt that said, TV is bad for your brain. <laughs> <There's lots of laughs> but it seems so quaint now to think that television's bad for you, as opposed to all these Anything other else, devices, right, right. all these screens that we have. It seems so sweet to think of a family like watching television right, together. Right. But we did have, we had a VCR then we could play movies. So I, a lot of my movie experiences are old movies. Like I, I watched a ton of, really a lot of movie mus musicals and a lot of Woody Allen and basically what they had at the library. So not a lot of up-to-date things, but yeah, anything that the Sacramento Public Library had. Yes. In January 2011, mm. I interviewed you for the first time and you were talking about the fact that in high school you were just getting into performing arts, I think, yourself. And you were kind of joking about the fact that you were just always running between rehearsal and, and chasing gay boys and just sort of the, you know, it was an interesting time in your life. Maybe you can yeah. brief people who didn't hear that oh. first interview. Well, yeah, I got, I mean, I was, I got really, really interested in theater in high school. I mean, I was interested in theater before. I actually spent a lot of time going to Oregon Shakespeare Festival with my family yeah. and we would do, we would drive up there and then we'd see two plays a day every day for five days so you'd see like eugene o'neill in the afternoon and then you'd see shakespeare at night and it's a it's an acting company so you'd see the same actors play you know in a tennessee williams mm -hmm. and then play phaedra or something you know it was it was a kind of 
in a way, like completely idyllic, completely incorrect view of what actors get to do, <laughs> which is that they get to play a bunch of different parts and that they're in repertory all the time and that it's a constantly a new challenge. <laughs> and the truth is that only exists in the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Because in the real world, what, people get typecast? Or you get whatever. typecast. Yeah. It's you probably, if you're you know 32, you'll be playing 32. Right. You don't get to try your hand at a bunch of different things. Right. But that was what I sort of where my love for, for theater came from was the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And then in high school, I got really invested in it. And... Yeah, lots of musicals, lots of romances, yes. lots of high emotions, yes. <laughs> lots of drama. <laughs> <laughs> and so, well, I guess just jumping back for a second, yeah. why did you guys start going to the Oregon Festival in the first place? Was that your mm. parents sort of seeing that you might like this or you just happening to or you wanting to be there? Interestingly, even though neither one of my parents is a writer or an actor in that way, like they, they both were really interested in theater. Like my dad, my whole life was always interested in Sondheim and we had all the Sondheim records and he liked, you know, Monty Python and Steve Martin and, and Woody Allen mm -hmm. and we all like the kind of typically great but semi nerdy stuff that was possible <laughs> and and they were both sort of theater junkies in a way and so they were interested and then i it was very clear that i was interested quickly so then they they kept they kept going but it i think it's nice i always think like when you make films or you make theater you, you sometimes you're like thinking to yourself like who am i making this for <laughs> am i just making it for my peers mm -hmm. or and I was like, I'm making it for my parents. My parents are the people who were like, let's go see a play. Mm -hmm. Let's go see this dance. Let's go see the symphony. And it wasn't because they had ambitions towards it or because they were critics. It was because they were enthusiasts. And so to this day, that's sort of in the back of your head when, when I'm going to, you know, who am I making this for? It's for my for parents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you get, you get into Barnard, you go off yeah. to New York. And what was it? while you were there and as you came out that you thought you would be doing in, in the real world? Well, when I when I went into Barnard College for Women in the city of New York, affiliated <laughs> with Columbia University, <laughs> that's the full title, <laughs> I thought I was going to, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but I did know at a certain point, I think I knew when I was going in, but I did know I wanted to be involved with Initially, it was theater, somehow, just any way, any way they would let me in. And whether that was doing like lights and sound or whether it was running a box office or whether it was acting or whether it was writing, I, I didn't care. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to be part of it. And so that kind of made it easier in a way. And then I fell in love with film when I moved to the city. I started going to Film Forum and Anthology Film Archives and the Museum of Moving Image. And I got an education in film which I didn't have before also Kim's video they had one up by Columbia and they organized it by director which is the first time I'd really thought hard about directors mm -hmm. I think directors are invisible to just the general movie going yeah. public you look at actors mm -hmm. you don't look at directors and then it was like I knew directors existed I mean especially like a Woody Allen type right. but he was a celebrity like in and of himself right. But yeah, I saw, I was like, oh, you like Howard Hawks movies. <laughs> you don't like movies with Rosalind Russell in them. Right. You like Howard Hawks movies. <laughs> I mean, you like Rosalind Russell, right. but that's not why right. you like it. Or, you know, that that was, so then I got involved with film and then I was like, okay, theater or film. These are the two things I want to do. And then I was writing a lot because <sighs> writing is free and nobody has to pick you. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was going to be a playwright and I applied to playwriting schools. When you're talking about nobody having to pick you, was that an issue with Barnard theatrical productions or something that you <laughs> wanted to do more than you were being allowed to do it there? Well, I did a lot of student run productions, but there were always these departmental productions that were put on every year, which were the sort of like classy ones. <laughs> like everyone auditioned Prestige. for them. They had yes. like more money. Right. The professors directed them. Right. It was always like, that was the thing that you wanted to do. And I don't think I ever even like got a call back until I would always go and try to do a very serious <laughs> monologue that I thought was showed my range. Which was? Well, like would be like from a classic, you okay. know, like, like some like I would be Lady Macbeth or yes. I would do like Abigail from the Crucible for some <laughs> un unnecessary reason. And then one year, I think it was senior year, I was like, 
fuck it. <laughs> I've never done a piece of writing that I actually feel deeply connected to. And so I said, I don't care. I'm going to do a monologue that was written for a man, and it was from Kenny Lonergan's Lobby Hero. Mm -hmm. And it was written for a guy, but I knew how to say it. I just was like, I know, how, I just know how to say this writing. And I did it, and then, of course, I got a call for back that, that one, year. Yeah. And then I got this show, and I was like, oh, was this the is the wrong lesson. Oh, it was... <laughs> It was, um, just thinking what Kenny Lonergan gets you into here. No, I mean, it was it was really <laughs> honestly it was just because it, it, it had no relationship to what we did. It was it was basically like a version of the Trojan women, okay. <laughs> which was didn't relate to Kenny Lonergan. Right. No, 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 no. That's like, what's funny. I just I think, felt yeah. like it was it was the one that I felt mo when I felt most comfortable. Then people were of like, course. oh, I would cast you. Right. <laughs> but I'd been already like right. I was doing acting classes. I brought in I brought in a a. I kept bringing in scenes that I had written freshman year. To the acting classes yeah. for, for at Barnard. And then one of the professors said, I think you want to take a playwriting class. And I, <laughs> I, it hadn't even occurred to me to be a playwright. And I said, no, no, other people write plays. I'm just writing these stupid scenes. And she said, no, I think you want to write plays. So then I got into playwriting. And it was really lucky because there were all these professors from Juilliard at Barnard and Columbia while I was there. So it was the acting professors and, and writing teachers, like playwriting teachers from Juilliard. And they were amazing. And they really helped me out. And it was really awesome because I did not get accepted to Juilliard. Okay, so you still got <laughs> twice, it. Twice, yeah. twice, as an undergrad and then in graduate school. Really? Yeah. Wow. So how in 2006, during, I guess, spring break of senior year, mm. did you wind up at the South by Southwest Film Festival? And what happened there? Well, my boyfriend at the time, who's still a very good friend, was a major cinephile and we would go to movies all the time together and then he was from Chicago and he started working on a movie with a Chicago filmmaker named Joe Swanberg and it, and it was about relationships and technology. Also, it seems very quaint now. <laughs> and he asked if he could use voicemail messages. I had left, left him as like found audio for the film and I said yes. And then they, they were going to premiere it at South by Southwest and it fell on our spring break and I went and I went with him and I guess I, I had already seen, I was a, the summer before I had seen Puffy Chair by the Duplass brothers and I had seen Funny Ha Ha by Andrew Bojowski and I really, really loved both of them and especially, especially Andrew's movie. I felt this kind of deep connection to that I couldn't totally articulate and it felt like oh that's the kind of thing I want to make for somebody who hasn't seen it can you explain just without you know I understand the connection mm. might be hard to explain but what was this movie what does this movie look like well it was sh you know funny haha -ha was shot on it was actually shot on film it's shot on I think it's shot on super 16 and it's with non-actors but I I had a feeling while I was watching it, and it, this proved to be right, it's very, very written. It seems not written, but that's not true. It's super scripted. Like, every every word of it, mm -hmm. even, um, mm -hmm. like, eh, like just little asides. It was all scripted. And I, I think I could recognize it because of my interest and investment in theater and playwriting, I can just hear mm -hmm. when it's written versus improvised. And it, sound, it, it hits my ear differently mm -hmm. when it's written. It feels like it's been written like sheet music. And I, I thought it was perfect. I thought it was a perfect movie. And it ended, it has this great ending. It's all about this girl's kind of unrequited crush on a guy who gets married in the middle of the movie and then her co-worker at a temp job sort of in love with her but he's creepy I mean the whole thing is very low-key but it's sort of quietly devastating mm -hmm. as it goes and anyway at the, the last scene of the movie is this guy she's been in love with the whole movie and he comes and meets her for lunch and they're sitting outside and eating lunch and watching these guys play frisbee and he makes some stupid joke and she just looks at him and then looks away and then the movie's over. <laughs> and it's because her crush is done. And you just know in that moment she's done. Mm -hmm. She doesn't love him anymore. And I was like, oh, that's such a great, that's a great ending. And it's to so underplayed and it's so echoed like all the filmmakers I like, which is like 
Mike Lee and, you know, who is also super scripted, mm -hmm. which people don't think. They think it's just happening and it's not. It's but very scripted. I, what I remember from Mike Lee, like there's a scenario. Well, they build it. They, they build, build it, it from right. improvising. What they do is he has a scenario. He gives everybody characters. They do months of improv. Yeah. And then he goes away and he writes it all out. So it's word for word. Then he gives it back to the actors they memorize it word for word okay. and then shoot it like that so, the so it of, sounds yeah. off the cuff but it's the opposite of off the cuff gotcha. it's almost like how Werner Herzog has like his documentary subjects he interviews them then he has the literal printout of what they said then they memorize what they said and re-say it <laughs> so it has this layer of oddness mm -hmm. and I'm interested in the layer of oddness right. and I'm interested in scripted things anyway that was the whole point. <laughs> and that was I, and I love that movie. I go to South by Southwest. I meet Joe Swanberg. I meet Ty West. I meet the Duplass brothers. I meet Ry Russo Young. I meet the Safdie brothers, Lena Dunham, Barry Jenkins. <laughs> it was quite a group, yeah. which is like now even seems like more of a group. Yeah. Aaron Katz was there. There was a bunch of them. Uh, Amy Simetz. Um, so you could have done a bunch uh, of on that one festival yeah, yeah yeah it was a really magical time and then so and then i made films and went to festivals where i kept seeing these people so like then i made hannah takes the stairs in chicago well so let's but let's pause because yeah. so now you come out of that festival and you've been exposed to this new yeah kind of group of people and who are making a specific kind of film which subsequently yeah became referred to as Mumblecore. That's right, right. Where did that term come from and what does it mean, oh, as you understand it? It's the worst it? term. You don't like I it? hate it. Yeah, I mean, I think anyone who made those movies that they then have to hear that term hates that term. I'm just waiting for the day that I it never goes away. have to talk about it again. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it was just a stupid press term. I don't know how, I don't know who came up with Wasn't it. Wasn't there something with, like, Bajowski's sound editor? It was a sound, it was a sound, sound mixer, made a joke, yeah. and then it was... Because it, so it's not the sound was not it's not as opposed to hardcore it's mumblecore yeah okay but it was just a way of grouping these films which shared which all shared what in common they were cheap that's honestly the only thing I can think of that share that they all share because Andrew's films are really scripted really shot listed shot on film Joe's are all improvised, no interest in like written text at all, shot on the cheapest thing he could find because that was his aesthetic. I mean, I mean, everybody, oh, Ty West was a horror film, like he was interested in horror and suspense, like Barry was interested in something else entirely. His was super stylized and beautiful, Medicine for Melancholy. Amy was interested, I mean, everybody was interested in a different thing. It, they were just cheap. Made by young filmmakers. And we were all young. Yeah. I think those that I, I think that that was the thing that we were cheap and and I think the thing too was that we didn't I think often at film festivals I think people had gotten used to a version of a movie at a film festival that was like a calling card for your real movie you were gonna make <laughs> later do you know what I mean yeah, like it would yeah. be the short that then I'm gonna get the money to make the real movie or like that that like I'm gonna make this movie and then you know whatever. Warner Brothers will hire me to make a giant movie based on the strength of this, but this <laughs> isn't the real movie. Right. And I think what was different about these movies is these filmmakers were like, there is not another movie. Right. This is the real movie. Like, we just went and made a party and threw it and made a thing and didn't ask your permission, and this is what we wanted to make. We're Which not, was possible, though, right. also because of technological advances right. at that time. And totally, and also the, the editing software was all like the Final Cut, which was great. And So just cut out the middleman. Final Cut and the cheap, you know, the nice looking digital cameras, all of that really fed into, it really made it democratic. And I know, as you're saying, you don't love necessarily being associated with that term. But, and, but the weird thing is that it was really only a six month span that you were making those sorts of movies, right? So ha what, what happened in that six month period? Well, I made Hannah Takes the Stairs in the summer of 2006 after I graduated from college. And then I met the Duplasses there and Andrew there. And then I went to Texas and I made Baghead with the Duplasses. And then Joe and I right after that made Nights and Weekends. But Nights and Weekends was, we shot half of it, I guess, in the early 2007. And then we shot the second half of it a year later. But in between that, that was sort of, that was the extent of it. And then I guess I did Ty West's movie. I think really what it was, though, 
was when Hannah started being on the f started going on the festival circuit. That group, all those people I just mentioned, we really formed a community, and I think that was that was the thing that was the most important thing was that we were really looking out for each other in a deep way, and we're really interested in each other. And I think the thing is about being a young artist who doesn't have any invitation to the party is that it can be really lonely. And to have a group that's looking out for you and responding to your work and criticizing it or arguing over it or validating it, that's the thing that I don't think I could have kept going without that. Mm -hmm. And and that really sprung up around festivals. And this is, I mean, I'm so proud of this. I mean, I'm so proud of him. and <laughs> I love his movie so much. But like Barry Jenkins, yeah. me, and Aaron Katz spent a very random week in Argentina together <laughs> because we had this thing where we would go to any festival that would fly us yeah, there right, right. and feed us <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because we were so broke. And then, yeah. and then we were like, let's go to Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> we were in Argentina for like this just odd week, but it was like wonderful. But I mean, having that sense of we're all in this together was the thing that was most valuable. So those films that you made in that six-month period, which you mentioned, mm -hmm. Hannah, Baghead, Nights and Weekends, they, in a way, made you the poster girl of that movement, right. but they weren't making anyone rich, right? You guys no, were. No, no, what no. was going I mean, at the same time that you were becoming well-known in the film community for doing these, what was going on in mm. your life? Well, I was getting rejected from graduate school for playwriting, which is what I wanted to do. But I kind of like, uh, at a certain point, I like let that boat sail. It felt like it wasn't happening. And I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to break down that door. So I, I stopped trying. And I was working as a tutor. I was, a, that's how I made money. And living? Uh, I was living on an arrow bed in a shared bedroom in Brooklyn, which was just, if you keep your overhead very low, yeah things are easier so I just didn't have a bed for a couple of years but it, the aero bed was fine yeah <laughs> and it, it, it all felt very exciting though it didn't feel like it was leading nowhere it felt like it was leading somewhere now obviously you had a commitment to doing projects that you felt a personal connection to passionate about at the same time you have to think for, towards the future at that point so sure. what were some of the things that you were simultaneously auditioning for Oh, I was auditioning for everything. I, I would have done anything. I, I mean, th the truth is, I think if somebody had given me another out, I probably would have taken it. I, I was Another career. Well, not another career, but like if I had been a series regular on some show that I don't think anyone would think I would want to be on, I would have been like, yes, yes, definitely. Sign <laughs> me up for that show. Please, let's do this. And you did this. audition for Gossip Everything. Girl. I auditioned for Gossip Girl. I auditioned for All the Law and Orders. I auditioned for... <laughs> Every television show, I can, every pilot, everything. I was there's nothing against those shows, but it's just funny to think because you're oh, no, no, no. so totally. associated with like an indie, my, you know, yeah. worldview. It just is funny that it could have gone off the rails in a very different way. Well, that's just because I failed at being in the mainstream. <laughs> it's not because I'm so righteous right, in right, my right. indiness. It's because they didn't want me or they didn't know what to do with me. Did you get feedback about why that was? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't dress right. I didn't. I, you know, it's a really, it's a real full-time job to, to, especially for television, you have to show up full hair and makeup in your tight outfit <laughs> and, and you have to be really good. And I just wasn't good at that part of it. And I, I didn't understand a lot of the writing. I couldn't sell it. I, I thought I, I was a bit awkward in it. I, I got feedback. Someone said like, it sounded like I was making fun of the material. <laughs> and I said, no one is more serious about this <laughs> material than me. I'm not making fun of it. So the thing that came along that kind of allowed you to continue in this mm -hmm. direction was Noah Baumbach? Yeah, Greenberg, definitely. I read Greenberg, and I was auditioning all the time, and I was like, oh, this girl is not me, but I know exactly how to play it, and I have to play it. For anyone who still has to go back and see that, can you just explain... I mean, the title character was not the most lovable guy. Yeah. Who were you playing and why 
were you affectionate for this person who was affectionate for a person that's so hard to mm. care about? Well, not care about, but to yeah. like. Yeah. So Greenberg, Roger Greenberg, was played by Ben Stiller, and my character, Florence Marr, was the personal assistant to Roger Greenberg's brother's family, which is a pretty LA job, <laughs> like being a personal assistant, doing the errands and taking the dog and the dry cleaning and doing all this stuff. And you know, it's I, I it's hard for me to say exactly. I just there's so few movie scripts that are well written. I mean. I can count on my hands how many I've read that are well-written. <laughs> and Noah is a great writer. He uses language really well. Most movie scripts, even ones that end up being good, look like a bunch of junk on the page. <laughs> and they sound like a bunch of junk. I mean, like, I mean, the Coen brothers write great scripts. The, but they're great writers. Wes Anderson writes great scripts. And Mike Mills writes great scripts. Mm -hmm. Noah writes great scripts. You know, Rebecca Miller writes great scripts, but like there's, there's not that many, like most of them. And that was one of the first ones that I read that I was like, oh, this is great writing and I love it. How did he know about you to even send it to you? He'd seen some of the little movies I'd done. And I think in some ways it was more it, through my agent, like he sent the script. And I think in some ways having me read was more curiosity than anything else in terms of... Do you remember that first interaction? What was it? Was it oh an audition? God, yeah, yeah it was, I, I auditioned, yeah. So you show up. I showed up. I dressed as the character, how I thought the character should dress, and I read a, the whole script. And honestly, I think he had this... I think there was a fear with me as an actor when I was starting out that like maybe I didn't really know what I was doing. Like maybe I didn't have any technique or that I was just kind of like a girl that they found in the street <laughs> that I didn't have any ability to recreate, like reproduce it again and again, like you do on a movie. And I think part of, and I went through, then I auditioned two more times, three more times after that. I auditioned in front of Scott Rudin and then I auditioned with Ben Stiller in front of Francine Maisler, and then I auditioned one other time. And I think they really wanted to make sure that I could that I could act, that I was an actor, and that I wasn't just that, some. Noah kid. was your your advocate there. You felt. No, I think there <laughs> were definitely. <laughs> I think there were times when he was like, nah, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> not. I think it was always like. I think he always thought I was good, but right. I I think he definitely. I was one of a group of people being considered. Mm -hmm. So you get the part. You're yeah. very happy about that, and now you really poured your heart into that one. I remember yeah. talking to you about some of the preparation that involved yeah. physical stuff yeah, and written yeah, stuff. And yeah. maybe just to contextualize sort of how you approach things, can you just share, we'll, we'll go on to the other movies afterwards, but since this was the one that for a lot of people put you on a larger yeah. map, what went into that performance? I gave it pretty much everything I could give it. I, I mean, I, I, God, I, I studied that script like it was a Bible I spent time working in LA as a personal assistant. I gained 15 to 20 pounds. I got really sad. I sung at bars. I just try I it sounds silly. I really tried to become this person as much as I could. And I don't know that's still sort of how I work. Mm -hmm. I don't immersive. I don't know any other way to do it. In a way like I'm always so impressed by actors who have the ability to just do it and drop it. <laughs> it's incredible. Or like to know where the light is and the camera is and get the performance in the thing. And I feel like I just try to hypnotize myself as much as I can into the head space of this person and then hope that the camera gets it. So when that movie was done, yeah. you see it for the first time. The opening sequence is... Yeah pretty memorable it's you yeah. in an unusual opening and movie comes out great reception A.O. Scott New York Times critic I remember said you were something like the actress of a generation I know that made you very cringe when I quoted it back to you but it's a I mean it basically did in a sense elevate you from being if anyone had just said like oh this is Miss Mumblecore now yeah, you were yeah. beyond that right yeah it changed for sure other opportunities after that right yeah. away yeah I mean once it came out it changed after I had made it before it came out I didn't work for the whole time because you you couldn't get work or you chose not I to couldn't work? get work couldn't get work 
nobody knew I'd made the movie. I was back to like auditioning for Law and Order. Like I didn't. It was like it never happened. Right. And it, but that yeah, after the movie came out, I I, I got work. I remember, I'm always like fascinated by the stories of. I mean, it happens to actors all the time. But like, but like the stories of like, you know, it's like Dustin Hoffman after he'd made The Graduate, but before it came out. Yeah, yeah. That waiting period. De Niro was collecting unemployment. I think yeah. after Godfather Two or whatever. Right. Or like, you know, I th- I think there are, you know, there are a million stories like that. And I had no money. I remember I I put myself in L. A. when Greenberg came out because I was like, you got to get a job. Yeah. You got to take this moment and get a job from it because you're dead broke and I was living in a motel in Burbank and no I was before I had the motel in Burbank I had been flown out there to for the premiere Mm -hmm. or something and my hotel was like up that night and I was driving by the you know the Los Feliz 3 that has the Mm -hmm. anyway my face like was on one side of the Los (laughs) Feliz 3 and I didn't have anywhere to stay that night (sighs) And I, I, and luckily my, my parents' friends were in town and I stayed on their couch that night and then I found this place in Burbank and then I was auditioning for Arthur and No Strings Attached and I don't care if people don't like those movies, those movies saved my fucking life. Because you now had some <laughs> Because I had a job, yeah. I had a job yeah. and I felt great. <laughs> right. I was like, thank God, like I, I had to translate this moment into something wow. because I was, like it was just, you know dire i was down to nothing yeah and as I, the movies in theaters oh yeah yeah i was it was like one of those things where i like i didn't even have enough on my debit card to rent a car because you have to have yeah, enough deposit. that they take it was oh man in your own life you're what do your family and friends make of that of you in that moment what are you you're going out on the street i'm sure some people are recognizing you it must be yeah. so surreal where it's like you've made it, but you haven't made it. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, they were, my family and friends were hugely proud. And like, to be fair, like I, I, I come from a very loving, wonderful background. And like, I, it's not like I had nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. I could always go home, like always. Yeah. But I think it's so much more stop and start on the inside than it looks like on the outside. Everything on the outside looks somewhat inevitable <laughs> and like, Oh, well, that was just smooth sailing right. all the way to the top. <laughs> and then, like, being inside of it, you you know, I mean, I just listened to Francis Ford Coppola talking to Terry Gross, and he was saying, like, when he was prepping The Godfather, he was like, I had two kids. I had another kid that was just born. I was dead broken and, like, <laughs> fighting with the studio to, like, cast people that I don't, I don't even know that they're going to show up and do it. Good. <laughs> you know, but, like... It just seems so inevitable. Like, yes, of course, Francis Ford Coppola is going to make, right. you know, what he did. And I'm not comparing myself to Francis no, Ford but to Coppola. But there is something to, like, it feels like a big old mess when you're going through it. It's only in retrospect that it seems to make any sense at all. So in the midst of these movies that you referenced that maybe weren't as successful as you would have hoped, but were still important nonetheless, Arthur and No Strings yeah. Attached, and some of these where you're dipping your toe in the mainstream, I yeah, guess you could say, yeah. seeing how it felt. I mean, how yeah. did it feel? Great. Yeah, in the moment. Aside from the... I loved making both yeah. of those movies. It's, I, I really did. I, I Russell Brand was great. Helen Mirren was great. And Arthur, I, you know, I, I've always felt very uncomfortable being the, the love object in a movie, mm-hmm. so that was a source of discomfort. But I loved doing it. I yeah, loved it being fun. around them. And then No Strings Attached was where I met Natalie yeah. Portman, who I'm still good friends with, and Liz Merriweather wrote it, who I'm still good friends with. Yeah. And I got to be the kind of, like, best friend, which I feel <laughs> very comfortable with. <laughs> <laughs> and then where along the line, or how did it work with, with Noah? Did you guys just... Did you fall out of touch for any period before Francis Ha, or did you decide? Like, how did it come about that you're gonna now collaborate again? Well, we we didn't really talk while he was editing. We talked at the when the movie premiered, and then he said he had an idea to make a film in New York. He had he kind of it, it was almost like he had more of the idea of the way he wanted to make it than what he wanted to make, and he wanted to do it completely under the radar not announce it anywhere, not have to start up and design it so he could shoot as many days as he wanted to. And did I want to be in it? And did I have any ideas? (laughs) And I had been, because I'd been acting so much, I hadn't 
been writing as much, but I've always been writing kind of on my own. And I had a bunch of ideas of little snippets, which is sort of how I start. That's always how I work. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, I would do that. Like, I would do that with you. And here are a bunch of ideas. And, and just sat together and turned it into a script, or how does that work? No, well then he he read them, and they were they were things like, it wasn't even character ideas. It was like trying to figure out whether or not you pay the surcharge at the ATM, or making friends on a message board by proposing to be someone you're actually not, right. or like things that didn't even end up in the movie, but like little things. And then so he saw them and he was like, I think there's a movie there. I think we should like keep pressing on it. And then I started writing scenes and then he started writing scenes and we were in different cities. And so we would just send them back and forth to each other. And then he'd edit my work and I'd edit his. And at a certain point we had a lot of material and we just, you know, honestly, we started, we'd talk about it a lot. We'd read it out loud together and we started pounding it into shape and it took about a year I guess, to write that screenplay. This is Francis Ha that we're this talking about. This is Francis about. Ha. Yep. And then we shot for probably a total of 50 days, wow. which is a long time. Yeah, for a, what was the budget on this? Like nothing. $400,000. Wow. And just to remind people, black and white elements of each of your own lives, right, I think, or more, mostly yours. Yeah, no, both of our lives. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I guess there were a lot of, I remember at the time there were a lot of, I don't think one thing could be written about Francis Ha that didn't reference Girls, right? Because you guys so both funny. had Adam Driver. Yeah, that's Girls right. was just hitting the, the scene as well. But, and it's it so was funny New because, York. Because now nobody talks about that. About Girls. Well, because you guys were bef before Well, not that. in reference to Francis. Yeah. Like nobody brings it up anymore and then yeah. when we made mistress nobody brought it up like it's just funny how like it's like of the moment but like it doesn't endure or whatever well yeah. it just it was like the clear comparison of the moment but you're the first person to bring it up for like three years i apologize no i don't, I don't care <laughs> it's just it's just funny because it's like i remember being like ah why can't i just be evaluated right, on, on its own, own merits yeah. adam and then, driver and then, i think was the probably the main yeah. reason right because but you guys had him before girls had him yeah, but it doesn't matter. I yeah. mean, like, the truth is, but then you just, like, go through that, you just go through that wave of whatever, that moment yeah. of wanting to, t it's just, like, I feel like now the one benefit of going through it a number of times is it's, like, you just kind of live through whatever the moment is, right, right. and then you look back and you're, like, but that's not how anyone remembers the work. Right. No, well, people loved that one though pretty quickly. I think and yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, yeah. already it got Criterioned, which is quite a quite a nice thing. Uh, it's Criterion. So, one question that I, I hope I can ask is: yeah. when along the line was it during or after Francis Ha that you guys became a couple? Because I just wonder when you go and watch that movie, yeah. just want to try to think about it. You know, does does it? I wonder if it shaped the movie at all. Yeah, I think it does shape the movie. Yeah, it was during shooting it and it wasn't during writing it was during shooting it and yep. yeah it definitely it didn't change what we were shooting but i'm sure it probably lit me better <laughs> <laughs> that's great so and and in that case you had already worked with him as just by being directed with him but by writing with him and now being directed by him as well did you find anything different about you know, mm. anything about him that, that you thought differently? No, I, I think it, we always sort of had the same... Whenever we've collaborated together, like writing, and I've acted for him, we always see the movie the same. I don't know any other way to say it, but we, we're just always making the same movie. It's like when songwriters write together, they're just writing the same song. They never really discussed what the song was before, they just know what it was. And so, like with casting, which it, I'd be very involved in, or costume design or set to, you know like when we're picking props and looking at a shot it would just some things would just feel like yeah that's our movie and other things would be like that's that's not our movie like it and it's such a hard thing to define but it's not like we'd ever get into arguments about it because it just it just would be self-evident to us anyway is it correct though i kind of remember that you had said at one time i think by your suggestion, you almost were not going to be in the movie. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, I don't write with actors in mind, myself included. So 
there's always a moment of feeling like I maybe I don't maybe I don't want to do this because I don't I because I really don't write it for myself or for my strengths. I figure out how to do it once Noah's like, you're going to do the movie. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, fine. Yeah. The year after that came out, mm. so in 2014, yeah. I believe you did something that, I just remember getting whatever it is, the email alert or whatever, where it says there was mm. casting. And not in any way, you know, you can do whatever you want, but it just seemed to me, I was so surprised mm. when I read that you were going to be doing How I Met Your Dad, which was yeah. going to be this TV series, which just felt not, again, could have been you know could be a great thing in the end but i just think this is like it didn't exist so, in the end <laughs> well that's right but yeah. i mean when i'm th- when yeah. i just was thinking about it, i'm like yeah. this is like the opposite of what i ever would have imagined you were right. gonna do why right. did that start even well you know i made francis ha and i think we'd shot mistress america but it wasn't done yet mm-hmm. i couldn't get hired by anyone else basically not i mean i did the humbling with barry levinson yeah. i couldn't get arrested that's so crazy i had a theory for a while that because francis was in black and white everyone thought i was dead (laughs) and that they were like remember when movies used to be able to star people with faces like like greta gerwig (laughs) too bad she's dead we'll never cast her i couldn't i was sitting at home literally ripping my hair out i was depressed i couldn't figure out how to get hired I felt like I had made this thing that I was so proud of. I was like, that is the closest thing that's out there that's, that's me. It's my writing. It's, my, it's like my aesthetic. It's what I, I, and I felt like people responded, and I felt so gratified, like the, the thing you always hope to feel. Yeah. It's like I make a thing, and people respond to it. What a great feeling. And I could not get hired. Could not get hired. So and I, crazy. And I... I didn't know what to do about it. I I didn't know what to do. And I I was, uh, no, and I went back and before Francis even came out, we had started working on Mistress. So that was sort of before Francis came out and and we'd done Mistress. And then I started writing what became the movie that I have directed because I I was like, I don't know what else to do. I'm going to go back and do what I've always done, which is what I've done since high school and college, which is no one will cast me. I will write my own thing because I don't need to be picked to write. And I was just so depressed and I couldn't get a job. And I, to- I talked to my agent and he was like, come out to L.A. We're going to put you in some rooms. He was like, do you want to do TV? I was like, I will do anything. And I met with a bunch of TV executives in Los Angeles and, <laughs> and they all basically said what you said, which is like, why? <laughs> and I was like, have you noticed I can't work? And... They were like, well, great. And then actually, I really loved How I Met Your Mother. And I met the two guys who created How I Met Your Mother and then Emily Spivey, who was going to be working on How I Met Your Dad. And they were so lovely and so smart and so funny. And they said, and they were going to move the show to New York for me. And they were so fun. And I loved, suddenly I had a job. I had somewhere to go. I had people to like make up jokes with. Cause I was like writing with them on the pilot and I, I was going to be one of the, the writers and producers. And I was going to have like, they were, I made an agreement that I would get a certain number of scripts each year. So I was like, this will be great. This is a project. This is an outlet. And then I can go make my weird movies when I'm not making this show. But this is, I need, I'm like a German shepherd or a sheep herding dog. You know, like when they don't have sheep to herd, they'll herd kids because they just are going crazy. Right. And that's how I am. And I, I think really, you know, I know, I know it was an odd move in some ways on the outside, but to me, and it's the same way I feel about like No Strings Attached and Arthur. Those guys saved my life. I was really feeling like I just didn't know what I was doing anymore. And I felt like even though the pilot didn't end up going, I really felt like that pulled me out of my own, you know, whatever narcissistic depression of feeling like, why does nobody want me? And it was like, kid, nobody has to want you. You just got to go keep making things. Was that also just chronologically? I know you had done, I guess it, it had to have been after to roam with love and some of the things where that was before Francis that was before so but my point is just that clearly when you've got the attention and respect of Woody Allen and some of these people Mm -hmm. like here you're talking about he was one of your heroes and 
Whit Stillman, who yeah. you did Damsels in the Shroud. You had to know, like, didn't that boost your esteem at all? Yeah. I mean, you know, those those were definitely esteem boosting things, but <laughs> they don't like get you so far. Th- yeah. That and five cents. Yeah, right. Buy you some gum. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, you can't. Right. It's hard. I, I really feel like that's one of the hard, hard things about acting is that, like, you're not kept warm at night by the things you used to do. Mm-hmm. You only, it's its a completely, it's the, one of the art forms that is happening now. What I have mean, you done for me lately? Yeah. Yeah. It's like being a musician that, that plays on tour. You got to be playing. You, <laughs> you, otherwise, you're not playing. And I feel like that's, it, it's always amazing to me that the actors who are good at like waiting for years between things. And I'm like, but aren't you just going stir crazy? Or starving. Or starving. Yeah. I mean, you either have to be very balanced mentally, and and you also have to have a very large inheritance, <laughs> <laughs> like because I just don't know. And that's why I've always felt like. So I was I did How I Met Your Dad, and then right after, I went and I did a I did a play in New York, which was great, mm-hmm. and with a director I really love, Sam Gold, mm-hmm. and pre just before Fun Home, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and what well, he'd done Fun Home at. Oh, public. The public. public. Yeah. And he's, I had admired Sam for a long time and we'd met about something years earlier and I'd always wanted to work with him and it was like, it was like I finally got to achieve, I got to be in a play in New York. That's what yeah, I always wanted to do. It's still what I want to do. I, the, the theater is like the most refreshing lifeblood giving thing. Well, for and me. also at that, around that same time, you mentioned the humbling. That was yeah. you and Al Pacino. It's like, and I saw him a lot that year because he was promoting that. He was promoting, I think it's Manglehorn. Yeah, right, um, right, right. A lot of stuff. And every time I'd see him, he would go on and on about. Greta Gertwig and how great it was working with her. And That's so nice to hear. No, I'm telling you. And there was something about being in a, there was a scene where you guys were in a car at the yeah, end of a yeah, driveway yeah, yeah. or something. That's what right. happened? It was, I don't remember exactly. It was I just don't know some weird, he's like, something you did, like maybe you you like stayed angry at him in between yeah. cuts or mm-hmm, something. Mm-hmm. That's right. I think I stayed angry at him. I was like, I was really, um, <laughs> I also dyed my hair dark without telling Barry or Al and just showed up to set like that and Barry was like who are you right, right. And I was like I'm Greta Gerwig he's like what did you do to your hair and I was like I just believe that the character has this hair right and he sort of couldn't do anything yeah, right, about right. it but I I hadn't I mean like when I did the humbling and and that was a very like you know low budget we didn't make that for very much money but I hadn't worked in so long I felt like I had all this pent up I just I had so much stuff yeah. and I just I I, I they were it was it was very sweet. Al was very sweet, and I loved working with him. And that movie needs to be seen more. I like that movie a lot. But he's um, great in it. Yeah, Al's great in all it. of it. But then finally, I guess I don't know if it was just a long gestating mm. thing, but Mistress America, which again was oh, yeah. you and Noah writing and you starring, comes out the next year, two thousand fifteen. Yeah. That was a long gestation. Yeah, I mean, from the time we shot it to the time it came out, right. and part of that was like. Because Noah had shot another movie in between, which had to come out, while which was While We're Young. Yeah. And then there was this, it just happens yeah. sometimes. But this was, I mean, for somebody who grew up loving old movies, yeah, yeah, yeah. must have been fun, like <laughs> yeah. screwball kind oh, of, of stuff. Yeah. And then 2016, was it the first time that you had been directed by a woman when you did Maggie's Plan with Rebecca Miller? No, I did a movie called The Dish and the Spoon with um, Alison Bagnall, who is a really interesting, good filmmaker. And that I, I had done that movie, and I think there is another movie directed by a woman, mm-hmm. which I will... But you know what the truth is? I think part of the reason I have trouble remembering is because I don't really... The gender makes no difference. That's what I, I was like it ask. Yeah, does it in any way? Mm-hmm. Even in this case where it's a movie about motherhood or almost motherhood or whatever, did you think it would have, it didn't really matter that it was a woman directing? No, yeah. no. I mean, like, I would say maybe they were topics a man might not be as interested in, but actually what it was didn't feel any different. Yeah, so that basically brings us to this fall where you've got two new movies i also um i would be remiss if i didn't mention wiener dog written directed by the great todd solens oh um, yes which was really fun i just i've always loved his movies oh yeah uh, so he does um, some he's done some eccentric he stuff is, he's great he's a great writer and he's a really unique 
filmmaker, and I, I was really happy to work with him. Nice. Well, and then there's Jackie, which yes. I guess five years after No Strings Attached, you're back with uh-huh. Natalie. This time you're playing a historical figure for the first time, a, a real person, I should you know say. This is maybe you can just share who yeah. who this yeah, woman that's is. Right. I'm playing um, Nancy Tuckerman, who was Jackie Kennedy's personal secretary. Well, both while she was at the White House and then for the rest of her life. And they'd known each other as kids even, right? They knew each other as kids. They they went to preschool together and kindergarten together and then later high school together. They were debutantes together. And she kind of was just dedicated to Jackie. So Pablo Reigns, director, first English language movie, yeah. first movie about female protagonist. We've got Darren Aronofsky producing and then working very closely with Natalie, who's obviously the central title character here what did you make of the experience and just also about Natalie because I think it's definitely one of the best things I've seen her do yeah well I really like Pablo Lorraine I met him actually at Telluride when I was there with Francis and he was there with No right and I thought No was really great and then I I watched I've been watching his stuff did you see No out, outside in the park that, where they screened it there yeah. that was the yeah. same screening it was yeah. a great, yeah, it was great. great screening yeah. and he's He's special. I mean, he's a good, he's a really great filmmaker, but I didn't ever think that I would be in one of his films because it just seemed like How's probably I'm not going to be in a <laughs> yeah. a movie about, you know, Chilean politics probably. <laughs> I mean, it's possible, right, but right. um but I always really loved his films and then, you know, I got this this script for this while I was I've got the script for Jackie while I was making 20th Century Women. And it was, you know, it said Pablo Lorraine is directing and Natalie Portman's playing Jackie. And and I thought, that sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, I I mean, I I choose my projects really based on directors more than anything else. I don't really ask how big a part is or what the part is. I mean, it's always great when you love the part, but that's never been like my primary reason. And so I thought it would be exciting and it was exciting he he's a Pablo was he told us early to like disregard all the scene numbers he said any scene could happen at the beginning middle or end don't treat it like it's it's gonna happen in this order he was just very good at creating an environment that felt both free and rigorous which is a complicated thing to do but really, truly, as you said, it's Natalie's movie. So really, I felt like she was the sun and we were orbiting her. Uh, she was our queen. And and it was so it was very easy because you, you just wanted to be in service of, of Jackie. And, 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 and for me, it was a doubling of, of my, my character's position and, and my position as a person, which is that I was in awe of of Natalie and what she was doing. And I think Nancy Tuckerman was in awe of Jackie and what she did. That's interesting. So, and I, and I'm a little bit in love with Natalie and I think Nancy was a little bit in love with Jackie. Yeah. And so I think like, it's always nice when those things that are paralleled and, I think Pablo said something to, on the phone to me when we talked about it. He was like, I know you're, he didn't know Natalie and I were friends, but, oh. and he was like, but I know you're tall and I think it's really sweet and funny that Jackie has this big friend <laughs> behind her. And I was like, yeah, I was like, I'm in, let's go. Where's my wig? Well, that's great. Let's do it. And then of course, 20th century women, which I love, which yeah. is Mike Mills, you mentioned, and you're playing one of several women who represent different generations in the, in the family extended family of this young guy who's coming of age. And the appeal here was, the script or what were Mike Mills just as a director or what? Cause it's basically well, his yeah. own story, right? Yeah. I mean, I love Mike's movie. So the appeal was the, but, but it goes together. I mean, the appeal was him as the director, but then if you like a director, probably you're going to like the script. So it goes, it goes together and I got the script and I loved it and I loved how loving it was and how not schematic it was. Nothing fits neatly into a trope that we know. And I, I felt just the character that he was having me read it for Abby. I felt very protective of her and I felt very connected to her. And I felt like, I felt like she was mine 
even if I didn't get to play her. And, and she's kind of has a roller coaster existence, right? I mean, she has some yeah. dark stuff, but yeah. she's a light person. Right. She Well, she's based on his sister, who obviously was raised in Santa Barbara and then moved to New York for art school and lived in New York and then had cervical cancer because her mother took DES. And that's what happened to the daughters mm-hmm. of the women who took DES. And I got to talk to her a lot. The and sister. She, yeah, and she was really... Yeah, I mean, it was really invaluable. I mean, I really, I had a lot of time to prepare for Mike's movie, which is always ideal for me. And so I had, I, I was taking photography classes to learn how to use all the old cameras. I was listening to a lot of old records. Mm-hmm. I was researching all these old photographers. I mean, he would send me like just piles of photography books especially about like German photographers in the 70s which I knew nothing about and reading feminist literature from the time but also then rereading with new eyes things like Susan Sontag or like the the art criticism of the time and like I really loaded myself up with research but it was but you know you can tell when you watch Mike's movie so does he Mm -hmm. like that's what he's interested in he's almost He's equally interested in these people and these their psychology as he is in the jewels and the dross of the world of the time that they inhabited. Like, what are the speeches? What are the shoes? Where where were things made? What was the food like? What are the tele? What's the <laughs> telephone like? The objects have emotion for him, so I think it was the right way in as an actor to steep myself in objects and music and the time yeah do you see any thread connecting this character to others that you've played i just just to quote our friend ao scott again going back to maggie's plan he'd said quote of of the character in that one quote she's charmingly idiosyncratic to put it another way she's played by greta gerwig (laughs) close quote and in some ways and and not in any way a negative way Mm -hmm. there are a number of characters that you've made kind of lovably hipsterish in a way is that a fair mm. thing to say do you think is this woman no, no? you can't say lovably hipsterish why do you want to be called a lovable hipster i don't know is no. it, why is it a bad thing you can say charmingly in an idiosyncratic Char- okay but it, i don't want to be a loving hipster. why what's bad about being a hipster i've never felt that i am a hipster no <laughs> never not even once i have never been cool enough to be a hipster <laughs> not even close not even, Not even close. close. All right. Well, but so I, I, because I, when I think of hipster, I think of coming from the tradition of like a James Dean, honestly, or like the truth is the essence of cool, of being cool, is that you are unaffected. Mm-hmm. That is the thing, is that you are not taken in. And I think hipsters, when I think of hipsters, yeah. you think of people who are like, you know, not going to be super enthused. They didn't go to the prom. They drove by it <laughs> and like laughed at the people who went. Right. And I am fully the girl who goes to the prom. I think people assume that I would be the person who drives by the prom, but I am the person who really wants to be in How I Met Your Dad. That is also who I am. And so I feel like the hipster thing isn't really So what throws right. people sometimes? Is it the, I mean, in this case, it's the... The hair coloring or the music, right, right, right. Stan- you know, whatever it is, sort of dancing right. to yourself or. Right. I mean, I think, I mean, I don't know. Were there hipsters in the 70s? I guess. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Wasn't I don't there. Know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I will say I can't help but be myself. and No, and it's not. But that's what I'm saying. But I don't I, see it as I a bad thing. But I don't, I don't think I identify as a hipster. All right. That'll be duly noted. The last thing is, what is your sort of assessment of things right now your state of things what are you I know that you're I think in the midst of your first solo directorial that's effort. Right. yeah but you know at this point in time so if we go back and listen to this in the future or if yeah. I you know if you happen to stumble upon what are you what are you proudest of what do you still hope to do what's your outlook well I'm I think I'm proudest of the thing I'm I don't know I'm uh, I guess I'm proudest of the fact that I'm still, that I've managed to still make things 10 years on. I started making films in 2006, it's 2016. It's a pretty good run. And I feel like I have not settled, which is a nice, which is a nice thing. I, and I don't feel like the mountain is behind me, which is also a nice thing. I think I'd like to keep directing and writing and working with people I admire. I, I mean, I suppose 
much of the same. I would say probably with more a little bit more emphasis on my own projects, but I've kind of been moving in that direction for the last five years anyway, so it's not like that's any great surprise. Yeah, I think I just would like to be able to keep doing things and keep working because I, I, I'm genuinely surprised that I've been able to, to do this, and it's really all I've ever wanted to do, so it's good that it worked out yeah keep it up and thank you so much thank for you. doing this thank i appreciate you. it thanks